You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 9, August 11th, 2016. Today on the show, we have Peter Green. Peter is a certified Scrum trainer and Agile coach. For about 12 years, he worked as an Agile transformation leader at Adobe Systems, helping the company to make a critical business transition from perpetual desktop products to the subscription-based creative cloud. He's also done extensive work on shaping the learning objectives for the certified Scrum product owner and is a prolific contributor to the community. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. So talk about your experience in working with Centrillium and then Adobe as an internal Agile coach. Well, I didn't know what Agile was when I was at Centrillium by that name, although Centrillium was a pretty Agile company. It was a pretty small company, 20 people. One of the cool things about Centrillium was that it was very customer focused. And so I was hired by Centrillium as a QA tester with domain expertise. And so they would hire people that were professionals in their industry. So Centrillium is an audio editing, mixing, music creation software. And my background was as a professional trumpet player, professional composer, and as a recording engineer. And so they hired me not because I had a degree in computer science or I knew how to run silk test or any of those standard things that you might look at for QA folks. They hired me because I ran a recording studio and I knew how to compose music. When I was hired there, I found out that I would be doing testing. And when I was not testing, I would also be in the queue to take support calls. And that was very cool because we got to hear from real users on a constant basis what was going on with the software. And so there was a tight feedback loop there um, with employees of the company. And so it was great for the customers because they got really experienced technical support, right? There was people that were working on the software, helping them figure out how to use it and identifying when things weren't working the way they wanted them to, which could be bugs, although it was a pretty solid application from a from a quality standpoint. More often it was feedback on, hey, how come you can't do this in Cool Edit Pro? And so we could take those right back to the team and say, hey, let's let's look at this as a new feature to add. While it wasn't called Agile, it wasn't called Scrum, it was definitely in the Agile ethos of, of how to run a company. And then Centrillium was acquired by Adobe in 2003, and I moved from the Phoenix area up to Seattle to work at the Adobe office there. And maybe two years after moving to Seattle, I moved from testing into program management, and uh, that was kind of my entree into thinking about how software is built. And within the first month of being a program manager, I attended a brown bag lunch. It was uh, Jeff Sutherland presenting to all of Adobe's program managers just a quick hour overview of here's this thing called Scrum. And I remember listening to that presentation and Jeff would say, you know, in in Scrum, we prioritize the most important features and do those first. And I remember thinking, wow, if we had done that on our last release, that would have 
prevented these issues and it would have given us time to get feedback on this thing. And then he said, um, in Scrum, we have a daily, this daily meeting for 15 minutes where everybody checks in on what they're up to. And I remember thinking, wow, if we had done that, that would have prevented this issue. And, and just as he described Scrum, I saw it as directly addressing a lot of the issues we had had on our team. And I want to go on record as saying this was a high performing team already. And so it wasn't that we were in trouble and things were going bad, but every team, I think, has opportunities to get better. And I saw Scrum as helping us do that. And so we decided to use Scrum on our next product. And we actually were going to build a 1.0 product for a different target base. Audition is really targeted towards, you know, the biggest customers are in radio and podcasting, actually. We wanted to target specifically video editors. We wanted to build something for them. So we were building this 1.0 product that ended up becoming Soundbooth, and we built that all with Scrum, and we loved it. We loved using Scrum. Uh, we had really good results with it. And other, other teams, product teams within our group, which was the video group, we're kind of paying attention to what we were doing and saying, wow, how come those guys' bug count is so low? And historically at Adobe, some teams had pretty strenuous end games where there was a lot of overtime. It was pretty crazy trying to get everything fixed and cleaned up and ready to go. One of the other teams in the Seattle office, I remember, was, was having a pretty hard end game. They were working on Saturdays, like mandatory Saturdays and, and working late every night. And we got to our end game and our bug count was one third of what it had ever been, like the total number of open bugs was one third of what it had been in our previous cycle. We were thinking, well, what are we going to do for the next six months? Like our quality has been high the whole time because we've been using this thing called Scrum. And so we would, like I said, it was a, it was a really tight team. And we decided that we were going to go out and play wiffle ball at lunch. Uh, out, we had this cool grass field. And so we're out there playing wiffle ball in the grass field in the Seattle office. And these other teams are looking out their window saying, what are those guys doing? We're, we're working overtime. There was a little bit of, are they just like, did they just not write that much, that, that many features? How are they doing this? They started asking us about it. And we say, well, we use this thing called Scrum. And in Scrum, we get to release level quality every sprint. And, you know, this was back in 2005, 2006. We were using one month sprints on these big desktop products, right? But so every month we would try to get to release level quality. And and so I started explaining it to them. And they were like, oh, that's interesting. But they had no bandwidth to absorb any new process information at this point, right? Because like I said, they were just there. They were just plowing, trying to get things released. Once that version shipped, so that was uh, CS3, Creative Suite 3. Once that shipped, we, you know, those other teams started coming to us and saying, hey, can you tell us more about this Scrum thing? Because that seemed to work really well for you guys. And so I, I put together a few slides, like here's how Scrum works and here's how it worked on our team and here's what we did and here's how it worked in an Adobe context. They asked me to help them a little bit. And so we brought in Ken Schwaber to do some training and then I would help do the training and then do a little bit of coaching with those teams. Eventually, um, I had I had worked with Ken as as he came in and did, did these trainings, and he would have me do more and more of the training. And after I think the fourth time that Ken came into Adobe to do it, um, I actually got my VP and my director to come to that training, to that last CSM class that, that Schwaber did. And at the end of it, we were all talking about it, and I, I think I said something like, "That's ah, too bad. This isn't my full time job. I think I could I think I could could really help a lot of teams here." And Ken looked at me and said, well, Peter, maybe it should be your full-time job. And both my director and VP kind of looked at each other and said, huh, maybe. And so we shipped CS4. And, and during that time, by the way, that, that was all going on during the CS4 cycle. I had moved on to be the group program manager for the Creative Suite as a whole. And it was kind of this shocking 
um, contrast where I was on this pretty agile team, right, with with Soundbooth, moving to the creative suite, which is like this. It's a, it was at the time a fairly bureaucratic job to coordinate across all of the teams that were building creative suites. So it was Photoshop and Premiere Pro and, and Acrobat was included and all these different big, you know, kind of staples of Adobe software, coordinating them into a single release. And so I had moved from very agile 20 person team to 1,400 people coordinating the efforts of multiple teams. So it went from very agile to, I'll just say, not very agile. Uh, and and doing those CSM classes helped kind of keep me sane during that that time period. And, and we shipped CS4 and my VP, Barry Hills, um, at the end of that, we had a phone call and he said, so do you want to be the group program manager again for CS5? What's next for Peter? And I said, well, Barry, you know, when we were talking to Ken, we, we had that quick discussion about maybe making this my full-time job. And I think there's enough demand at Adobe for that. I think we should do it. Barry said, yep, yeah, let's do it. Barry was a, is a great, I guess, executive supporter of Agile. And so Barry figured out how to create a new job at Adobe for Agile training and coaching. And from 2008 uh, until I left the company last year in 2015, that was my full-time role. And I trained thousands of people we had almost every creative, what became the Creative Cloud, uh, every Creative Cloud team using some form of Scrum. Many of the teams using it really well. Some of the teams uh, doing what I would say using Scrum words to describe what they did. It was, like like Daniel mentioned in the intro, pretty important that we were able to do that because during that time frame, Adobe transitioned its entire business model from those you know, perpetual license desktop products to the creative cloud, which is subscription, release when new features are done. I'm certain that we couldn't have done that transition as well as we had, as we did, if we had not helped all those teams move to Scrum and given them the capability to deliver when new features were done. Kudos to the boss for creating that position, because it's not easy in big companies to create positions for people, especially for something as new as an agile coach, an internal agile coach for that matter. Your story reminds me as of my transformation to Agile. When I did that, I was also leading a very high performance, high bandwidth team. It was interesting because I got a little bit of resistance and the journey was a little was a little bumpy and rocky. In in your case, you are on a high performance, high bandwidth team. There was no crisis point or no motivation to switch from the old way to the new way. So can you talk about that a little bit? Mm, yeah. Um, I I think that I remember Ken's first slide in his CSM said, Scrum, it's about common sense. And I think that when I described Scrum to my team, most of the folks on the team said, well, yeah, that, that all makes sense. It's not that different from how we're doing things. We had our own incremental um, process that we used before. It was called AFID. Adobe's parsimonious, harmonious incremental development. And so we already had an iterative approach, but it, there were there were basically it was without sprints. And so we would get a feature all the way done, but many features could be going on at any given time. The time boxes weren't there and the time boxes of Scrum really helped us kind of take our incremental approach to the next level. And we said, look, Scrum says you have releasable stuff every sprint. We're building a 1.0 product that's going to be Mac and Windows. We should have a feature that works on Mac and Windows at the end of the first sprint. And there, there was this big debate because they said, well, look, the, the Media Core library is not going to be available on Mac after a month. It's going to take nine months. Why are we going to duplicate the effort? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the point here? And we said, you know what? Scrum says to do it. We're going to try and do it. We're going to use the art of the possible. What could we do in a sprint? And we ended up building... Um, in that first sprint of Soundbooth, again, a 1.0 product, audio product, 
we ended up building a giant playback button essentially. Um, and there was, there was a lot of pushback on that saying, well, that feels like just wasted time that we're going to build all this, you know, scaffolding code and then, and then tear it out later. Um, initially when we finished that sprint and you could actually play something back on Mac and windows, uh, I think most of the, the grumbling had gone away with that specific idea of this vertical slice, um, that you may end up doing scaffolding cold and, and toss it later because we learned so much. Right, we we were, we learned so much about how to develop on the Mac. Uh, we ended up just writing a, a middle tier that that took calls in the UI um, and would take what we were going to say to the media core. So take the the calls that were going to go into this shared library and translated them right into Mac's core audio product protocol. So that gets into the, a little bit technical, but the idea was that uh, eventually we would just plug the media core in and it would work because those calls were already coming through. Um, because we did that, it's actually good kind of object-oriented decoupling of code. Um, and so we learned a lot about, A, how to write on the Mac. Everybody learned a bunch about Xcode in that sprint. Um, and when I talked to the team at the retrospective of that first sprint, a lot of the people that were naysayers about that idea had kind of shifted their tune a little bit. There were there were a few developers that really resisted for most of that cycle. I have kind of a funny story about that. There was one developer who constantly pushed back on these ideas of doing vertical slices and and working you know collaboratively as a team doing more kind of pairing and and you know um, even what's now called mob programming although we weren't doing mob programming it was more of this swarm idea like let's work together on one feature and get it all the way done in a sprint and all the way through that cycle, I felt like this one developer was pretty resistant to that. And then, in, uh, as I mentioned, I helped some other teams transition later, right? And so this this uh, developer had moved on to another team, and that team called me and said, hey, we want to do some scrum training. And I knew that this developer was on that team. And I thought, oh, man, all of my stories about how great this was and how we did this, he's going <laughs> to he's gonna have the other perspective on each one of those stories, and he's going to push back and say, well, yeah, we did it that way, but here's what sucked about it, right? And I didn't know if he would sabotage it, because I never felt like he was trying to sabotage it. I always felt like, you know, he had a, he had a perspective that he didn't feel like Agile was the best way to do things, um, and it was for him individually, you know, there's some truth to that for him as a developer, right? So anyway, we got to the training and, and I was ready, right? I had gone through each of the stories that I normally tell and, and the experiences that we had. And I had thought about how, how this developer might react to those. And in the very first one, this developer, you know, I'm, I'm ready for him. And he chimes in, sure enough. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, we should really be using this approach. And I was like, whoa, what happened to this guy? He completely changed his tune. And he became one of the biggest supporters. And it's actually one of the lessons I learned is that, A, skeptics, are not something to be, you know, overcome or skeptics are not, you know, I don't, I'm not going to worry about a skeptic. Skeptics have a valid perspective that's important. They care deeply about their perspective. That's why they're skeptical, right? They only want to do the right thing. Once a skeptic kind of buys into this new way and sees how it can work, they often become your biggest advocates. And so I used to be pretty stressed out about, boy, there's going to be these skeptical people and how, how am I going to overcome that in the training and instead, I just use those. I, I use that as this. This is an important perspective. We want to make sure that we're including that perspective because if you just ignore it and try and gloss over it, everybody senses that that you're not paying attention to every voice, um, and it becomes important to include all those voices in the conversation. It kind of reminds me of uh, what Gerald Weinberg says in his book, Secrets of Consulting. You know, everything 
kind of traces back to being a people problem. So, I mean, if you can get people, then you can ultimately resolve many of the problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Peter, what are some influences that you've drawn from in your coaching stance over the years? Early in my uh, work as a scrum master, and then especially as I was doing more work at the organizational level, um, I came across at one of the conferences, Agile conferences, um, some presentations by Lisa Adkins and Michael Spade from the Agile Coaching Institute. And Lisa and Michael were the first ones who I thought really described how a scrum master does their job effectively. Uh, since then, I've, you know, I've, I've realized that there's this whole other world out there. Um, it's a, actually a, a common occurrence for me is that, you know, S Scrum or Agile will describe something. And then as you dig more deeply into it, you realize that Agile is one stream of kind of a way or a philosophy of doing business and that there are all these adjacent streams to that. And so the adjacent discrete, uh, excuse me, the adjacent stream that I discovered from Lisa and Michael is that there's this whole world of coaching that is, um, you know, they've got their own conferences, they've got their own books, they've got their own training. They had tapped into that world and, and brought that world into the agile community. And uh, so the, the kind of coaching philosophy uh, that comes from CTI and ORSC, the Organizational Relationship Systems Coaching World, um, is a big influence on me. That led me into um, kind of additional things like um, leadership development. Uh, and and what, I, what I learned at Adobe, one of the big kind of takeaways there is that organizations don't transform, people do. Um, you don't, you don't just change systems. You, you know, people really need to have some level of transformation in order for agile to work. And so I, I got really heavily into what does it take for leadership development? And I don't, you know, some people might hear that and think I'm talking about management or executive development. I'm really talking about leadership. What is leadership? How does it, you know, how, how do people have more influence in an organization and so that includes management and executives, because in most organizations, they have inherently more influence um, just due to their title and, and often their, their place in the hierarchy. Um, and so that's pretty critical, right, to have those folks adopt an agile mindset if they don't already have one. Or, or just like we talked about with the skeptics, they need to see how does this thing help me accomplish my goals? Um, and, and so they need to have the same kind of level of, um, transformational work that any team does, any process does. We need to get them, uh, uh, kind of in the, in the conversation. We need to see that their personal goals as a, a critical part of the transformation. So I would say the, the kind of the coaching world and then the leadership development world, which is really closely tied to organizational development world. So there are all these different streams of stuff going on. And sometimes I get a little frustrated with the Agile community feeling like they, they think that this is all there is. Agile is, is it. And I almost feel like we need the same kind of, if we were to use an analogy, you know, in 2001, the Scrum folks, the XP folks, the DSDM folks, all the, all the, the inventors of those processes got together and created the Agile manifesto. And Agile has become much more powerful because of that combination of thinking. I almost feel like the agile community now needs to do the same thing and let's get 
somebody from the agile community and somebody from the coaching community and somebody from the organizational development community and all these other streams that are going on, we need to get together and create some new manifesto. I don't know if it's a manifesto that we need, but it's how do we work together and stop using different words to describe the same things uh, so that we have a clear and coherent message to the the business and organizational world at large. Um, went to the Drucker Forum a couple of years ago and a agile did have a place there, which was cool because the Drucker Forum is top level executives in business, government and education talking about how we run our organizations. And agile was a theme there. Um, but even the folks that weren't from the agile community were describing things that people in the agile community would recognize as agile. Uh, and so there was this kind of shared ethos across most of the folks that were presenting and, and discussing their, you know, what they were up to that all sounded like agile to me as somebody coming from an agile background, but they were not describing it as this is agile. So I think that there is, there, there's this combination of, of the, these different really, um, communities that if we were to get them together, we'd be much more powerful than we are separately right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that a lot of people in whatever community they're in, whether it's the Agile community or maybe the management community outside of Agile, they, they think they invented it and they think they're the only ones that have problems with deadlines and team dynamics and things like that, when in reality, it transcends everything you do in an organization, not just the IT world. And you know, I, when as you were saying that, I couldn't help but coming back to your bio and being a professional trumpet player, and you're talking about all these influences that you've had on Agile and how we need to look at Agile from an outside perspective. So I know you have a background in jazz and have some opinions on where jazz and Agile are, are influenced. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, at, uh, at the open space in uh, the New Orleans, uh, New Orleans Scrum Gathering. So we were in New Orleans, and I was like, wow, this is, this is the birthplace of jazz, right? This is Louis Armstrong, right? This is the, the Marcellus family. This is, um, this is where jazz grew up. Um, and I hadn't ever quite kind of tied all those things together, that I have this background in jazz as an improvising musician, and I had run you know, my own bands uh, when I was a professional musician, and... and and participated in a lot of them. And I started thinking about um, the similarities between jazz and agile. And so I, I put together an open space session where I called, let's see, was it three? I think, th yeah, three other jazz musicians in the New Orleans area that I had never met before, but that I knew by reputation. In fact, I was connected to them by another CST, Roger Brown, whose son had taken guitar lessons from this guy who was now a professional jazz guitar player in New Orleans. So I called this guy up and I said, hey, could you come down at such and such a time tomorrow morning to the <laughs> to this uh, to this hotel and uh, we're just going to play some tunes and I'm going to talk about the similarities be between jazz and this this software development thing called Scrum. And so he grabbed a bass player and a drummer and they showed up and they set up their gear and we played a tune and I started talking about how jazz bands communicate. Uh, the traditions of jazz and the culture of jazz and the similarities to scrum. And so if you look at uh, an improvising jazz group, they are, I think, the definition of a self-organizing team, right? They, we, we didn't talk about, we didn't have a planning session for how we were going to play together, um, but we have this shared vocabulary from the jazz tradition 
that it's all about making music together. It's about the sum of the parts being greater than the whole. Um, jazz is a conversation within uh, within the group and between the group and its audience. Um, it, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff about the importance of leaving space and listening and continuous improvement and mastery. And in fact, Alistair Coburn describes jazz music as a cooperative game, and he describes software development as a cooperative game. Right? It's it's a game where there's not winners and losers. It's where everybody is enriched by playing the game. Uh, so I, I drew a lot of uh, similarities between what I learned in jazz and what it what it takes to create a successful musical experience and what's going on on a software development team. I think there's a lot of lot of similarities there. Yeah, and, that, and that's a big topic here here in Silicon Valley. They're talking about bringing all those different perspectives in. They're saying there's not enough women in IT, there's not enough minorities in IT, not enough this, not enough that. And unfortunately, a lot of the companies, and these are the big ones too, they're just checking the boxes by saying, okay, we're going to go hire more people and have a more diverse team, where my definition of diversity is actually what you just said, is bring those experiences together and not have point A and point B but actually have point C, which is the merger of their two their two experiences and their two perspectives. It, it sounds like a, a lot like what you were saying. Yeah, in fact, that the, the way you describe that is exactly how uh, I mentioned Michael and Lisa bringing in the, these concepts from ORSC, the Organizational and Relationship Systems Coaching. In that frame of coaching, you're actually not coaching individuals. You're coaching what they refer to as the third entity, which is the combination, right? It's like the space between them is what you're coaching. And what you're trying to do is bring out the, what they call the, the voice of the system, right? So everybody's got their own perspective, but the system, the, the combination of all those people and ideas has its own, almost like it's its own entity is what they call it, right? The third entity. Uh, and so that's absolutely what that, that style of coaching, that philosophy of coaching is about, is how do we get the, the combination of those things to be really powerful? Yeah, I love that because typically what I see happens in this scenario, you'll have um, two people with two different diverse opinions because they come from diverse backgrounds and one of them is trying to convince the other of their opinion as opposed to trying to come to something that's in between. Yeah, it's all about learning, right? It's, it's not about me convincing other people I'm right or selling the team on my idea. It's about going into those conversations saying, what well, can I learn from these other people who have different experiences? And if I if I look at well, if you just look at innovation in general, innovation is always combinatory. Right? There's a great book called The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, right? Who did the Jobs biography and and the the Ben Frank a great Ben Franklin biography, and and he wrote this book called The Innovators where he studies the the history of the computer industry essentially, all going all the way back to Ida Lovelace and the Babbage machine, and then tracing it all the way forward through today in artificial intelligence. And, he, and he, he describes every single innovation that happened in computers and Internet and how each one of them was combinatory. It was at least two people working on it. It was taking two ideas from vastly different spaces and combining those to come up with something different. And so this idea that innovation is some, you know, some genius sitting underneath the tree waiting for inspiration to strike, that's not how innovation has ever happened. Uh, it's always at least two people combining perspectives from different fields leads to innovation. Peter, we ask everyone on our show a similar question. 
It's kind of the premise of the entire show. What do you think the future holds for Agile? What I hope the future for Agile holds is this broadening of perspective beyond the Agile community. Um, we already kind of touched on that. Um, I think that Agile as a way of thinking is very powerful and has some missing pieces to it that other communities can fill in. Um, at the end of the day, all product development, all organizational uh, design, um, all of the work of doing work is about the people. And uh, Agile has a very deep background in the technical pieces of software development, in, in which is critical um, as software becomes more and more ubiquitous in, in any offering, in any organization. Um, Agile has the values and principles of Agile describe a lot of the people stuff about the collabor, you know, it describes a lot of the people stuff about the importance of collaboration. Um, but I think where the Agile community could really benefit are from these other communities that have really nailed how collaboration happens and how people work well together and what motivates people. So even tying it into advances in psychology, uh, uh, tying in the advances in neuroscience, right? Great, great research on what motivates individuals, what causes them to make the decisions that they make. So if you look at behavioral economics, right? So if we were to take behavioral economics and neuroscience and psychology and coaching and collaboration and some of the stuff that's happening in um, more like really forward-thinking organizational design, so self-managing teams and self-managing organizations. A lot of the stuff that's been described in Frederick Laloux's book called Reinventing Organizations. All of that stuff is, to me, what's next for Agile. It's, it's taking these ideas of team-level collaboration and then going both directions. What does it really look like to have a fully collaborative organization? And what does it look like to have individuals that are are growing towards an agile mindset as individuals. So they're, they're thinking in an agile way. They're inspecting and adapting personally. They're taking a collaborative approach in, in their lives. Um, they're moving towards really wholeness um, so that I don't feel like I, I'm a different person when I'm at work, but I can bring my whole self to work. That, that ties neatly back into the innovation idea that Innovation happens when people are sharing diverse perspectives and finding the, the best combination of ideas. And what's um what's uh, what's next for you this year, uh, the second half of 2016? Uh, any great books or conferences or keynotes or things that you might be working on? I've got a couple of talks coming up at the Agile 2016 conference, uh, which is coming up soon um, in June. And, and one of those is about collaborative cultures, and it's specifically about how to describe Agile uh, to different people with different perspectives. And so we, you know, somebody that has a really agile mindset, uh, is often frustrated in an organization that doesn't have that mindset yet. And so we talk about how agile has benefits to almost to, let me say that again, agile has benefits to somebody with almost any perspective. So we talked about the developer that I was working with early on in, in my agile coaching that had a different perspective. And they just needed to see how Agile helped them with the things that they cared about. And so one of the sessions is about that. Another session is about uh, there's, you know, scaling is this hot thing in, in the Agile community right now. How do you scale Agile? And 
going back to the roots of Agile, Agile has almost always been about making teams great and uh, has struggled often in moving to the organizational level. And so there are a lot of different frameworks out there that people are excited about and trying to use. Um, what we did is, is we sat down and said, what are the principles uh, that make teams great, right? There, it's about trust. It's about openness. It's about collaboration. It's about sharing of perspectives. And, and what makes it hard to get those same characteristics at the organizational level? And a lot of that just has to do with how human beings interact, right? You, there, there are things like the Dunbar number, right, where you can't, you, you don't, you tend to not know more than about 150 to 200 people. Um, and so beyond your team, that's, that's really tough. You can't effectively collaborate beyond more than about seven or eight people. So how do you build relationships of trust beyond just a seven or eight person team? So we looked at those principles and, and we're going to give a presentation on um, a set of principles that we found uh, that organizations are using to get the same benefits at the organizational level up to thousands of people. Uh, that are not framework-based, right? It's it's principle-based. These are principles about how human beings work together and ideas that you can use to get those same benefits of trust and collaboration. And real, really, at the end of the day, it's about agility. How do we make decisions as an organization um, to respond to complexity, to respond to rapid change, to respond to crises when they come up where we don't have to go through um, some type of kind of heavy bureaucracy to to, just to get down to a team level, um, to the team's work. Uh, so we're going to be presenting on that. Um, and then for me, just my personal focus this year is really on my own capability to help leaders grow and develop. And so I've, I've been doing a lot of personal work on that um, as I've reflected on my career at Adobe and then moving forward, what I'd really like to do is be working with executives who have the most influence in their organization um, to help them adopt at an agile mindset as a leader um, in service of their goals. Right? It's not about I want to make, um, I want to put my stamp on on anything. It's really about people have their goals and they're frustrated and they're overworked and uh, they are struggling to to achieve their own goals. And I think that a lot of the concepts from Agile, when you combine them with a lot of the concepts from leadership development, help any executive um, accomplish their goals with less energy spend, right? So they're not feeling like they've got to, they got to put in 80 hours to get their goals met. Um, there, you know, there are ways that we can do these things that involve all of the Agile concepts of collaboration and, and shared perspective and being able to respond quickly to change. Um, that allow any leader to to get those results without killing themselves to do it. So that's been my focus. Peter, this has been awesome. All the stuff that you've mentioned during this interview has been fantastic. We truly appreciate your time and the the deep insights that you've given us. Thanks for inviting me to do this. It's um, it's obviously something that the three of us are all passionate about. It's great to great to get a chance to chat with you guys about it. Please join us next week on Agile Next with our guest, Steve Smith. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.